You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology. I'm excited to bring you a new feature, which is called Editor's Picks. As you know, every month we feature Editor's Picks online, and now what we're doing is reviewing why I believe this is relevant to the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope you enjoy this new monthly feature and continue to listen to us in the future and hopefully give us feedback. So without further ado, let's start. October, there were three articles that I felt were important in rheumatoid arthritis. First is entitled, Effectiveness, Complications, and costs of rheumatoid arthritis treatment with biologics in Alberta. Experience of indigenous and non-indigenous patients by Barnaby et al. It's long been recognized that there may be disparities in access to treatment, effectiveness of treatment, and complications of RA between indigenous and non-indigenous patients in many countries. The aim of this study was to examine the clinical effectiveness, treatment complications, and healthcare costs for Canadian Indigenous and non-Indigenous patients with RA in the province of Alberta in Canada. The authors reviewed the data for 1,490 patients who had entered into the Alberta Biologics Pharmacosurveillance Program between the years 2004 and 2012. The majority of patients, 1,400, were non-Indigenous, while 90 patients were Indigenous. As previously reported in other studies, Indigenous patients had significantly higher disease activity, as measured by the DAS-28, or the Disease Activity Score 28, than did non-Indigenous patients when they began their biologic therapy. Improvements in the DAS-28 function, swollen joint counts, C-reactive protein, patient and physician global evaluation scores were comparable between the groups. However, the indigenous patients did not have an improvement in their ESR while the non-indigenous did. Read the paper to see if at the end of the study, at their last follow-up, were there differences between the indigenous and non-indigenous patients in terms of percentage who had a DAS-28 remission, the risk of all-cause hospitalizations, the rate of serious infection, the cost of RA-related hospitalizations, and outpatient department visits. This paper also addresses how these potential disparities can alter the outcome at both an individual patient level and at a population level. The second RA article is entitled, Sex-Associated Treatment Differences and Their Outcomes in Rheumatoid Arthritis, Results from the Meteor Registry by Bergstra et al. It has been suggested that there may be a difference in initial treatment and response to treatment between female and male patients in RA as seen in clinical practice. This study used the measurement of efficacy of treatment in the era of outcome in rheumatology or Meteor Registry to examine this issue. Meteor is a multinational non-inception cohort with investigators from multiple continents. 
The aim was to assess differences in the initial treatment and response to treatment in male and female patients with RA in daily clinical practice. The study cohort consisted of 5,820 RA patients, of which 4,393 were women and 1,142 were men. The authors examined the proportion of female and male patients starting individual anti-rheumatic treatments, which included conventional DMARD monotherapy, a combination of conventional DMARDs, single conventional DMARD with glucocorticoid, combination of conventional DMARDs plus glucocorticoid or glucocorticoid monotherapy. This paper assesses if the treatment with hydroxychloroquine as monotherapy or in combination with methotrexate or glucocorticoid, as well as if the use of methotrexate or sulfasalazine differed between the sexes. Authors also investigated if the time to switch DMARDs and DAS measurement over time differed between men and women. This is an important study because it gives insight as to whether practicing rheumatologists treat men and women with RA differently and whether there is a difference of response to therapy between the sexes. The third paper in RA examines if poor prognostic factors alter treatment decisions, clinical outcomes, and work over a 12-month period. Paper is entitled, Do Poor Prognostic Factors in Rheumatoid Arthritis Affect Treatment Choices and Outcome? Analysis of a U.S. Arthritis Registry, and it's by Alameo et al. This paper uses the Corona RA registry to examine this issue. This registry is a prospective U.S. national observational cohort. Patients were recruited from 169 private and academic sites across 40 U.S. states with 656 participating rheumatologists. This large group of rheumatologists examined the poor prognostic factors, which were functional limitation, presence of extra-articular disease, seropositivity, and presence of erosions. The study population comprised 3,458 biologic-naive RA patients with a 12-month follow-up. Patients were divided into those with poor prognostic factors, according to a zero to three, and the outcomes examined were changes in medication, the Clinical Disease Activity Index, or the CDAI, and work status. As may be expected, the baseline patients with greater than or equal to three poor prognostic factors tended to be older, had longer RA duration, and higher CDAI scores versus those with zero to one poor prognostic factor. As you read this paper, you will find out if the portion of patients who received greater than or equal to one biologic differed among the groups, and if biologic or targeted synthetic disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug use were similar between the groups. The authors examined changes in CDAI among these three groups, and if the percentage who were working at baseline and 12 months differed amongst the groups.
The authors also suggest that this study has implications for the importance of poor prognostic factors in a treat-to-target approach. Read this article to find out why. So we've now finished the three articles in RA and we move on to SLE with an article entitled The Role of MIR-98 and Its Underlying Mechanism in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus by Li Ji et al. Previous studies have suggested that T lymphocyte apoptosis is important in the pathogenesis of SLE. However, the underlying regulatory mechanisms of apoptosis in SLE remain unclear. The aim of this study was to explore the role of a specific mirRNA, uh, MIR98 in SLE and its underlying mechanisms. The investigators examined MIR98 and fast expression using quantitative RT-PCR and Western blotting. They did this in 48 patients with SLE and 13 healthy controls. They used MIR98 mimics and inhibitors to see how they modified the, M the miRNA levels. And then they used a lentiviral construct to overexpress FAST in SLA patients' CD4 positive T cells. Find out the effect of the MIR95 mimic and the inhibitor on FAST-mediated apoptosis at both a messenger RNA and protein level when you read this paper. The authors also examined the effect of the MIR90 inhibitor induced apoptosis in CD4 positive T cells and compared between SLE patients and healthy donors. By reading this paper, you'll find out why the authors suggest that MI98 may be a potential target for SLE treatment. Well, the next study is really close to my heart as is a pediatric study. It's entitled Feasibility and Reliability of the Spondoarthritis Research Consortium of Canada Sacroiliac Joint Structural Score in Children by Weiss et al. Children with spondoarthritis or JSSPA are a distinct subgroup of patients with JIA. Previous studies have suggested that up to 50% of children with JSPA will go on to develop true sacroiliitis. Studies in adults have identified both clinical and imaging markers associated with sacroiliac joint ankylosis. One measure that has been validated to assess progression in adults is the Spondyloarthritis Research Consortium of Canada Sacroiliac Joint Structural Score, or the SPARC, SSS. However, there currently is no validated measure of structural progression of the pediatric SI joint. Therefore, the aim of this study was to evaluate the construct validity and reliability of the SPARC SSS score in children with either suspected or confirmed juvenile spondyloarthropathy. The investigators used the SSS to assess the structural lesions of the SI joint on MR through the cartilaginous part of the joint. 
Specifically, they conducted three sequential reading exercises with six different readers, and each exercise was preceded by a calibration module. Inter-observer reliability was then assessed using the intra-class correlation coefficients. They conducted three sequential reading exercises with six readers, and each exercise had been preceded by a calibration module. Inter-observer reliability was assessed using intra-class correlation coefficients, and pre-specified acceptable reliability thresholds were identified. So read the article to find out the phase validity, feasibility, and reliability of the structural score for the pediatric SI joint and learn the implications of MR evaluation in JSPA. The final article in this month's editor's picks again features spondylitis, but this time it is in adults. Papers entitled High Reproducibility of an Automated Measure of Mobility for Patients with Axial Spondylarthritis by Garrido Castro et al. Spondylarthritis is characterized by structural damage as measured by bone erosions, resorption, and newborn formation. The measurement of spinal mobility is felt to be important to determine the effect of therapy on patient functional and structural outcome. It's been suggested that the assessment of patients with axial spondylarthritis by measurements such as the Bass Ankylosing Spondylitis Metrology Index are subject to inter-observer variability. In response to this, the authors had previously standardized an assessment of axial SPA called the University of Cordoba Ankylosing Spondylitis Metrology Index, or UCOASMI. This measure is a validated index based on a motion picture video capture system or they call it the UCO tract. The aim of this study was to assess its reproducibility in clinical practice rather than in research. The investigators therefore carried out an observational study of repeated measures in three centers using the video capture system. 30 patients, 73% of whom were male, with axial spondyloarthropathy and stable disease were selected an inter-observer reliability of the UCO-SMI and, and of conventional measures were tested three to five days apart. Read the paper to find out the ICCs of the inter-observer and intra-observer measurements of the UCO-SMI and how they compared to conventional measurements of lateral flexion, the d distance tragus wall, cervical rotation, modified Schober, intermalleolar distance, and the BASME. It should be interesting to see if you find that the UCO-SMI is practical for daily practice and or should be used only for studies. I hope you enjoy reading this month's issue of the Journal of Rheumatology, either online or in print. For the current online issue, first release articles, and more features such as video abstracts and our guide for authors, please visit our website at www.jroom.org. Please give us your feedback on this podcast and on the articles in the October issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. 
please join me next month for my November Editor's Picks.